0: Please turn with me now to our sermon text, which is Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse 22. And he went through the cities and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Then one said to him, Lord, are there few who are saved? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow gate, for many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open for us, and he will answer and say to you, I do not know you, where you are from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know you where you are from. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourselves thrust out. They will come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, and sit down in the kingdom of God. And indeed, there are last who will be first, and there are first who will be last. May God add his blessing to this reading of his word. Let us pray. Lord, we need your blessing upon this word. It is not a comforting word, but, Lord, a word of warning to hypocrites, word of warning to those who have not put their faith in Christ, and, but yet they have an idea in their head that simply because they have some vague association, maybe even that they're inheritors of the great covenant of grace, their parents are believers, and that they go to church, that, Lord, they have an automatic title to the kingdom. But, Lord, we see it is not so. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to hear these words if not gladly, Lord, at least very, very thankful, Lord, that we are hearing them now as they are in prophecy and not hearing them for real on that last day. We pray you'd help us in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. Well we we come here to Luke chapter 13 and In fact, we return to the very statement we spoke of last time in verse 24. Strive to enter through the narrow gate, for many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. We considered that verse and actually made a whole sermon on it. It was powerful and it was uh, significant enough on its own, of course. But we did not then consider the Lord's elaboration of it in the words that followed. He gave this statement, and then he elaborated upon it. And that elaboration amounts to the most terrible nightmare that could ever be conceived by man. But it was not conceived by man. It was actually spoken by the very Son of God, and it was recorded by the Holy Spirit in order that it might be proclaimed to the ends of the earth as long as the world remains. Now, it would be equally frightening were it just a, a parable, but it's not really a parable. Just you know, of course Jesus doesn't call himself by his own proper name, but that's, that's frequent. Very often Jesus does not refer to himself in the first person, but rather by some title, in this case, the master of the house." That's what he is. And notice that this master of the house, quote, "taught in their streets." That's not the normal master of the house. He doesn't teach in people's streets. This is Jesus referring to himself in very, very thinly veiled language, which would would be obvious to anyone who heard these things. And although I call this a nightmare, there is nothing unreal about it, unfortunately. Actually, the very reason that Jesus spoke to them about this was because they were living in a fantasy world. They were living in a dream world. Again, from the very beginning of this section in Luke They are speaking in very offhanded terms. They have every confidence that they're going to be fine. None of these people that are speaking against Jesus have the slightest doubt in their mind that they're going to be in the kingdom of God. Jesus is, is there, and they take him or they leave him. They carry on their merry way. They think that they're inheritors of the covenant and that nothing more needs to happen. And Jesus is giving them a dose of reality. That's, that's what he's administering, a dose of reality. And he is explaining not, not the dream world that they were already living in. He's dispelling that. He's actually explaining the waking world, the real world, the, the things that will actually be said and done on the last day. And that's what's so terribly frightening about it. Let me say at the outset, That this text is not there to encourage your assurance of faith, your assurance of salvation. Other texts do that, and we'll look at them on other occasions, but this morning your assurance will be tested, and hopefully it will emerge stronger. Our title this morning is The Nightmare, and we have four points. First, Shut Out. Secondly, Claims Dismissed. Third, Depart from me. And fourth, bitter regret, the nightmare. First, shut out. Verse 25, when the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, who is this master of the house? Of course, it is Christ. And he is the master of this house. You know, the kingdom didn't belong to them. They might like to think it did. In fact, As we we say, the very context of this section reminds us that very soon every representative of the church that day is going to cast him out. They thought that they had the keys of the kingdom and that they were using this kingdom, in fact, to shut out Jesus and also his disciples. Remember those words back in the Gospel of John that they decided whoever said that Jesus was a Christ would be excommunicated, would be sent out of the synagogue. Well, they are living indeed in a fantasy world. The master of the house is standing before them. as Jesus Christ. They don't, this is one who is standing, who is not being embraced, is not being honored as he should. They don't believe in him. But he is the master of the house. Make no mistake about that. And it is the Lord who will shut the door. When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, he's going to do it. It is an act of God. It'll be like the, the last time that the Lord brought a universal destruction in the world in the great flood of Noah's day. You remember how it was in, in Genesis seven, this minor detail that is so crucially important, and those that in, so those that entered male and female of all flesh went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. It was a supernatural work of God, that the door was shut. The only means, the only possible means of, of salvation from that flood, it was shut. God did it, and all others then. It is right, isn't it? God provides the means of destruction, and it's not an act of, of, of man to end the day of salvation. Rather, it is an act of God, and so it will be in the end. And it seems to be a very sudden occurrence, because keeping with this parallel with Noah, and we understand that the word of God itself makes this parallel It's a sudden thing. Matthew 24, very much a parallel text. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And did not know until the flood came and took them away, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. They're just carrying on with their normal lives. They had no thought whatsoever that this was going to be the end. Then suddenly at a time of his own choosing, when his long patience, his long suffering comes to an end, the day of salvation is finished. He will shut the door. And they are left outside. This is describing what will happen to them on that last day. The door is shut and they are left outside. And so the nightmare begins. Well, secondly, you're shut outside, but they don't think that this is the end. Actually, they think it's a mistake. Secondly, even worse, their false claims are dismissed. It says, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. And he will answer and say to you, I do not know you where you're from. Note, by the way, that you begin to stand and knock, and later you begin to say. The picture is very clear. It's not a situation in which you're receiving due process, a full hearing. They will begin to knock, and they will be denied before they finish. They will begin to speak, and they will be summarily dismissed before they complete this action. Because they have no claim here whatsoever. This is a summary action. Now, they think that they have some claim on him. That's the thing. It gets worse and worse, doesn't it? These are not those who have never had a single association with the Lord whatsoever. These are ones who are absolutely convinced that they're being left out of the kingdom of Jesus Christ is a mistake. They think they have some claim on him. They say, Lord, Lord, open for us as if they knew him, as if they had some right to be there. And not expecting to be outside. It's just a mistake. A terrible mistakes has been made, Lord. There's some re- relationship there that can be the basis of fixing that. There, there's a mistake. On what basis? What do they think that they have a relationship? What claim do they think that they have on the Lord? Well, I think we can see something from another parallel passage in Matthew 8:11, And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, the sons of the kingdom, those of the covenant people of God. Perhaps they thought that they had some automatic access because, just because they were inheritors of the covenant promises. Even though they had not embraced these promises, they had not put their faith in the Messiah of which all these things spoke to. And along with that, they think they have some sort of relationship with the Lord just because they were in his presence says in verse 26, you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. Now, one of the more chilling things about this, he's speaking to them and he's saying, I'm going to tell you the future because I know the future. And I will quote from your own lips what you yourselves are going to say on that last day when you are shut out of the kingdom. I will say, I will tell you now what you're going to say. I'm quoting from you. You will begin to say this. We ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. That applies, of course, to those people who lived in the day of Jesus. It applies in a different way for people hereafter. Jesus teaches, you know, in the streets, every time that he is proclaimed, every time that his word is preached, he is teaching, he is, he is there spiritually. Through his word and his spirit, he is teaching you. What about the eating? You didn't sit down to eat. Those people may have. They may have ate in his presence. Maybe they were part of those who, who had were part of the 5,000 that Jesus fed even. But, you know, there is such a thing as the Lord's Supper, isn't there? And there are those who are in the presence of this eating and drinking of the Lord's own hand, the Lord's own serving. And this will be the basis upon their, their claim. They will say, look, you, you taught us. We ate and drank in your presence. And they're right about one thing. That is a privilege. They are right about something. Not everyone has that privilege. Not everyone gets to receive these things. It is a special and important thing to be in the visible church. The visible part of God's people to receive these outward blessings. To receive the means of grace. Not everyone gets that. The problem is they've abused that privilege. They've not embraced Christ in faith. They've taken things for granted. And he will answer and say to you, as this nightmare continues to get worse, I do not know you. He doesn't know you. They, they say, I, I think I know you. Actually, they, they don't really say that, do they? All, all they say is that you were there. All they say is that you taught. All that, they say that we ate and drank in your presence. They, they, in fact, don't actually say the one thing that they needed to say, which is, Lord, we clung to you in faith. Lord, we are clinging to you in faith. Lord, we believe you. You are ours. No, they don't say that. No, it's some outward, more distant relationship that they're speaking of. And he says what is so true. I do not know you. It doesn't mean that he doesn't know of them. Of course, he knows of everyone in the world. It's not like that. But he knows And is known only by the sheep. That sort of real knowledge is only, that relational knowledge is only there between the sheep and the shepherd. And he does not know where they're from. He knows where his own are from because they're born above. They're, They're twice born. They're born from heaven. They're part of his sheepfold. They belong to him. They know. They have the passport to heaven. They come in. They walk into those gates. He knows where they're from. But he speaks to them as the aliens that they are, aliens from the commonwealth. They have no claim because they have no relationship with Christ. And the Lord reiterates this in verse 27 But he will say, I tell you, I do not know you where you're from. I have no idea where you're from. You say you're citizens of this kingdom? Not at all. Not at all. There's no relationship, no citizenship. He does not acknowledge these people. They are shut out. And their claim is dismissed. If that was not bad enough, thirdly, they are told to depart. The nightmare just gets worse and worse for them. You imagine as this dawning reality is coming upon them like an awful flood. It is not something that is relenting, but rather it is just gathering and falling upon them like a ton of bricks. You can just imagine that dawning realization as he makes the declaration to them, Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. You see what they thought? They, they, had, they thought they had some claim. They thought that they had some sort of citizenship, some sort of passport. They thought they had some some kind of vague relationship with the Lord by which they could make some claim to come in. And then the, the words of reality reached them. You workers of iniquity. That's all you are. Workers of iniquity. That's all you ever were. Just a worker of iniquity. You Think about that and they say... They can't say anything against it. They have to say yes. That's all that I am. I, I'm just, just a work of iniquity. I don't have an identity in Christ. I, I'm not his. I'm nothing special. I'm, I'm a wicked sinner. And there's a place for people like that. It's not in the kingdom. It's not in the joyful presence of the king. I remember that now. I remember him speaking. I never thought that that would apply to me I know there's a place for workers of iniquity. I remember now those sermons. I remember Jesus' warnings over and over and over again. I always just assumed that was for somebody else. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. And where'd they go? They don't just remain outside the gate, as it were. They go somewhere. Matthew 25 brings it home. Matthew 25, 41, Then he will also say to those on his left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. To the everlasting fire. That's the thing. It's not just a, a fire. You have some false religions speaking of an idea of purgatory, where it is just a cleansing for a time. And of course, that's a lie. The very thing, the very worst thing is not. People have endured flames, you know, for a time. Martyrs have. Martyrs have. The thing that is so unendurable about this particular nightmare, unfortunately an all too real nightmare, is that it is the everlasting fire. It never does come to an end. There is no hope of it whatsoever. And that the reality of this nightmare you see, contrary to a real nightmare that we might have, when there is a dawning realization that it is not true, we're waking up, it was all just a dream, thankfully. It's the opposite with this one. Because at every step, it only gets worse and worse, and the permanence is is being brought home. Depart from me into the everlasting fire, not just the fire. The fire that is everlasting, of which there is no possibility of escape for all eternity. And then what? Well, it's hard to say that there's anything beyond that, of course, but there is. You see, as this reality goes on, some people say, well, please, let it just be that they would be extinguished then. But no, that's not what the Word of God says. No, they carry on in this conscious existence of the everlasting fire forever and ever. And what is, there, what is going to be there then? Fourthly, there will be regret. It'll be bitter, bitter regret. Verse twenty-eight: There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourselves thrust out. Now look, we don't we don't begin to exhaust the horrors of hell when we speak of regret. Some do; they say that's all there is when, when we speak. What well, the fires of hell that just speaks of regret. That's hardly it. It's the wrath of God without intermission for all eternity being poured out on the wicked. That's what those those people, those kings of the earth, and the captains, and the poor, and the great, and the and the rich, as well as the the the, the every sort of person, they say to the mountains, "Fall on me." Why? Because they don't want the wrath of the Lamb. You see, the, the Lamb has appeared, and already from a distance, they see in his eyes. Wrath. And it is unendurable. It is unbearable. And they would wish the mountains to fall on them to hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. But of course, it is not to be. So it is not at all the exhausting of the doctrine of hell to imagine just regret. But Jesus' point in this particular passage is about regret. He is speaking to people who are going to regret that they did not make the most of the opportunity they had to put their faith in Christ, to have a real relationship with the master of the house. And he says, on that day, you will see others coming into the kingdom. Some that you, of course, figured that were going to be there, maybe perhaps some others that you did not. The point is, you will see others come in and you will see yourself cast out. And there will be weeping. And gnashing of teeth. Now, this weeping, it will not be a godly repentance. That much is very clear by the whole idea of and gnashing of teeth, because that's the language not of those who are truly repentant of these things, but rather who know they are in the wrong and they hate God and his people all the more for it. So it was with those who killed Stephen in Acts 7 when they heard these things. They were cut to the heart. They understood them. The the sentence had been pronounced through the Word of God. The sword of the Spirit was laid to them. And what did they do with that? They realized, yes, this is us, and they gnashed their teeth. They gnashed at him with their teeth. It's not godly repentance; just bitter regret and hatred. And that goes on and on and on. There's no end to that. What do you do with this? Could it be any more obvious? Could the point be made any more strongly than what Jesus himself made it? Wake up. That's that's the application. Wake up. You see, that's the problem. It's not that Jesus is spinning for them a tale that is a dream, speaking of some nightmare that's never going to happen in order to scare them. It's that they were already living in a fantasy world, a world in which they were assured entrance into this kingdom even though they had, never, they had no real claim on him. And Jesus is telling them to wake up. That's the point of it. You know, and some may need to wake up. Some may need to say, you know... I've been seeking just about everything else in this life before the kingdom of God. Jesus said to keep, seek first the kingdom of God and these other things, but I haven't done that. I can't remember when the kingdom of God has actually been first on my list of priorities and other things get neglected compared to the kingdom of God. God was always a step or two down on my list of priorities, but surely this warning doesn't apply to me. Or I heard these things and you know in Revelation 21, 22, 15, but outside, remember these speaking of the same. outside are the dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices the lie. I know these things. I persisted in those kind of sins and other sins, but I didn't think I would actually be outside the kingdom. I know that Jesus said in Luke 9, 26, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man, will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. But I didn't think that he really meant it. You need to wake up. Because he did mean it. He really will be ashamed of you when he comes you really will be cast out on that day and he has done the most marvelous thing by quoting the words these very words that will be spoken on that day and say now is the time to do something about that so you need to wake up and secondly you need to make sure you need to make sure, you know, I'm, I'm saying this because you have people, the whole point of this is people who are expecting to come into the kingdom of heaven. And therefore, at this moment, they're not in any doubt. That's their problem, you see. They're not in any doubt, and that is their problem. And what is the basis of their false hope? Right? The basis of their false hope is the very same sort of things that could apply to this very congregation, to one of you, which is that you're a son of the kingdom. When well, we preach the, 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 the absolutely wonderful reality of the, the covenant promises, we are so thankful that we believe in the covenant in this church and that we, we baptize children we put the sign of the covenant upon them. Just because you're a child of the covenant, that, that means you're a son of the kingdom, but that also means you're eligible to be thrown out of the kingdom. If you do not, then also receive the basis of what that covenant is. The whole covenant is a covenant of faith. That's the whole point of it. And is it a promise? Yes, given from one generation to another. And, and yes, the promise is right there, but it must be embraced by faith. You must put your faith in Christ. Because apart from that, there's no special claim. You can't say, look, I was a covenant child. I was brought up in, a, in this Orthodox church, covenantal church, Presbyterian church. You can't knock on the door on that basis. You know what Jesus will say? I never knew you. Depart from me. Only only basis. And certainly not, by the way. Then certainly not merely because you were in the presence of his teaching. I know there will be many on that day. You taught us. I heard your word. I'm not like those guys out there. Who had never once heard a single word of of scripture ever declared to them. I heard it every week of my life. I was present in the Lord's. Maybe I partook of the Lord's Supper. I ate and drank in your presence. But now there's, there's one thing that they didn't mention. Which is the only basis by which they could ever be in that kingdom. Which is to say... I'm not, I, I was a sinner, but I entrusted myself to you. I put my faith in Christ. When the, the gospel, when the, the good news was given, I didn't just think about it. I didn't, just, I didn't just assume it. I actually embraced it. I embraced Jesus Christ. Christ, you know me. Because I have thrown myself at your feet. And I have embraced you as you have been freely offered to me in the gospel. They didn't say that but that's what you need to say that's what you need to do not keep the gospel at arms length but embrace it with everything look what would happen what would you do what would it be like right now standing outside the realization all this beginning to descend upon you like some horrible nightmare what would you do if you could of course once you're in that situation there is nothing you can do it's done But if you could come back to today, what would you do right now? What would you do? I think you would cling to every last word that I'm speaking like the dying man that you are. I think that you would tremble at every warning because you know for certain that these warnings are all too real. They're not theoretical. You would know by first-hand experience that they are real. And you would look eagerly for any sign, any, any possibility of the offer of, of the gospel. And if you heard it, if you heard even a word that there might be hope, you would, you would embrace it with all that you could. But you know, that wouldn't be enough for you. That would not be enough for you. You would be in constant prayer, moment by moment, thinking of that awful moment when those words were spoken to you. I do not know you. Those things would be ringing in your mind, and and you would be in constant prayer before the Lord, and, and you would be giving your minister no rest. You know, that's what happened in days of revival, by the way. Jonathan Edwards didn't get a lot of time to work on his writing projects. You know why? Because the people gave him no rest. They were in fear for their souls, and they came to him. And you would utterly forsake all sin that goes without saying. You would make a quick work of it. You'd sweep it away like the rubbish it is. You'd you'd cast it away. And nothing would come between you and this last opportunity to be saved. Well I say do it. You have nothing to lose. Do it. Thirdly, I would say to all of us we ought to avoid regret. Because there is a sense in which this warning, this day, this, this, this uh, elaboration that Jesus gives applies to all of us. Even those who have absolute assurance that we are Christians, who have really embraced Christ through faith. Because that is a promise that is given, isn't it? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. If only we were to think about that day. What would be the ones even inside? What about us looking outside the gates? And seeing this horror descend upon them and realize, and then ourselves also, the finality of that day. Do you think it would have an effect on us as well? I think it would. If only we let our future selves advise us a little bit more. You know, what would future selves say to us? We already have some words of some future selves here among us. The words, Lord. Lord. But what other words might there be from our future selves who would advise us right here today? What would he say? You're in. Take this. Don't, don't take this all so seriously. Eat, drink, and be merry. Is that the words that our future selves would say to us? Hardly. Hardly. I would say, younger self... I'm so thankful that we made it. This is a, a testimony to the grace of God. We, we are here, by the way. That's, that's what we're going to be for, for all eternity. Testimonies to the grace of God. And, and we're thankful for it. All glory to God. But, you know, I kind of wish I could go back now. And, and, and my advice to you is, is that you truly would make the most of your opportunities to glorify God. Because, you know, here we don't have any more opportunities along those lines. It's a really brief period of time. You have no idea how soon it just passed in the flesh. And now is the time to stand up for Christ, not be embarrassed about him and his word, but rather to speak with unambiguous clarity, to live in purity, forsaking worldliness. Now is your opportunity. And I would urge you, my my younger self, to walk straight and avoid regrets in eternity. Well, I'm positive that many more things should be said, but this is quite enough. Let's pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, Lord, you, didn't, you never have spoken any kind of word in jest or an exaggeration, or unnecessarily. Each and every one of your words are absolute verity. And, Lord, we know that Christ did not bring these warnings to bear in vain, but only because, Lord, he has, as eternal God, actually heard these very words spoken. And he's telling these people to turn before it is too late. And, Lord, how we pray, if there is any among us who harbor some false expectations of being in the kingdom, that, Lord, you would disabuse them of these things and bring them to saving faith in Christ. These words would not this day be in vain, but rather, Lord, they would all be clear on this matter. And indeed, Lord, we would do one another a favor by making our calling and election sure that we might have confidence on that day. And we pray, Lord, that we would, and that none here would be left out on that day, but rather, Lord, They would be able to say the one thing that really matters, that they put their faith in the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.